right, you may be seated. Pastor Jim, is it all right if I flip this thing on me? Is that okay? And I will stick this in my pocket, so hopefully I don't knock it all over the place. Does that sound okay? All right. Well, good morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 45 through 52. Mark chapter 6, 45 through 52. And before we start this morning, uh, let me say to my church family, speak on behalf of Mandy and my kids, uh, we love you guys and thank you for allowing us uh, to serve here. Um, you guys are really kind. It has definitely been uh, a privilege and a joy and honor uh, throughout uh, the years. And I know Pastor Doug and Pastor Jim have mentioned this before, not only how you love on us as your pastors, but how uh, you love on our families, you love on our wives, and you love on our, our kids. So I know, I think I speak for all of us. Uh, it means a lot. Uh, this has been a, a wonderful place uh, to be able uh, to serve the Lord. So Mark chapter 6, 45 through 52, the message today is entitled, very simply, Jesus is God, and he takes care of his people. Jesus is God, and he takes care of his people. There's four truths from this passage that we're about to read that I want us to focus on today. And I'll say them now, and as we go, I will repeat them. The first truth we'll look at is the importance of prayer in the life of Jesus. The importance of prayer in the life of Jesus. Secondly, we will look at obedience to the Lord many times in life leads to hardship and not comfort. Obedience to the Lord many times in life leads to hardship and not comfort. The third truth we'll see is Jesus in this passage again makes it clear that he is God. And then finally, we'll look at how we need to move from unbelief to genuine belief or genuine faith in Christ. So we're going to be reading Mark chapter 6, 45 through 52. Before I do that, Miss Irma, it's good to see you, sister in the Lord. It's good to see you. Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side in Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. 
he meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them, and he said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Let's pray together. Father God, you were kind, you were good, you're merciful, you're compassionate, you're loving, you're truthful, you're just, you're holy, you're righteous. Father God, we're thankful this morning that you are a God who takes care of your people. You're a God who cares and a God who loves. And so, Father, I simply pray today that you would be glorified, you would be magnified, that you would minister, God, your grace and your truth to the hearts of your people today. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray together. Amen. So let's look first at verse 45. So this is right after the feeding of the 5,000, which we talked about last week was probably more like 20 to 25,000 people as the 5,000 uh, were representing the men that were there. And so we saw this great miracle with the five loaves and the two fish, and it has become late in the day. And it's interesting that as all of that has transpired, the day's coming to an end, Jesus makes his disciples get into the boat and head over to Bethsaida. That word make means he insisted, he commanded them. So I kind of wrestled with the text. Why was Jesus so forceful, you know, with the disciples? I mean, you would think after this great miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, they would want to hang out for a little bit, enjoy that time of fellowship, but I want you to turn back to John chapter 6. Remember that these accounts are in other gospels, these parallel accounts. And in John 6, verses 14 and 15, it helps us understand the context better of what's going on in Mark chapter 6. So John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, and that was the feeding of the 5,000, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Now check out what verse 15 says. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. There was religious fervor, excitement uh, was in the air. And Jesus, like I told you last week, this was kind of the climax of his popularity, but it wasn't all a good thing. The people were ready to say, hey, this is our king. We're overthrowing you know, the Romans. We're going to come into Jerusalem and we're going to establish Jesus right now as the king. But we know as good Bible students, of the first coming of Jesus, when we think about the Christmas story, that Jesus came as the suffering servant. 
that in order for us to be rescued from our sin, Jesus was going to pay the sin debt on the cross for his people. He didn't come to set up an earthly kingdom. But the disciples at this point, when you study other parts of scripture, remember uh, James and John, hey, Jesus, when you set up your kingdom, they got their mama to come to, uh, to Jesus. Hey, can one of us sit on your right and one of us sit on your left? And so Chimo, there was kind of this pride and uh, arrogance that the disciples had that we all battle, right? Of, hey, we're on Jesus's team and we're going to be ruling and reigning uh, with him. And so they probably were caught up in this religious excitement. And they're like, yes, you know, this is going to be the time Jesus is going to set up his kingdom. But it wasn't the time. Now, yes, Jesus is the king of kings. And yes, Jesus is the Lord of lords. And yes, Jesus is coming again. And he will rule and reign. He is the sovereign Lord God almighty. But at this point in time, Jesus still had to die. And that's why he was very insistent that his disciples get in the boat. He didn't want them getting caught up in temporal things that really didn't matter. And by the way, for each of us here today, let's think about that in our own hearts. Are we caught up in temporal things today and we're really missing what is of utmost importance? So now we go back to Mark 6, there in verse 45 and 46. Jesus then dismisses the crowd there at the end of verse 45. We don't have all the details, but some way, somehow, Jesus takes 20 to 25,000 people and he dismisses them. He says, okay, it's time to leave. And they move on to their different places as evening is setting in. And then there in verse 46, after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. You see, there was something much more important than him establishing this temporal kingdom. Jesus was going to go before the Father in prayer. And that's the first truth that I mentioned to you earlier. Prayer was central to the life of Jesus. You know, when you study the Gospel of Mark, there are three specific instances where we see Jesus isolating, going to a desolate place to pray. Now, that doesn't mean those were the only three times that he prayed, but Mark in his gospel highlights these three different times. In Mark 135, you don't have to turn there, but after a day of much healing in Capernaum, very early on in his public ministry, the Bible tells us Jesus rose very early in the morning while it was still dark, and he went to a desolate place to pray. Then in Mark 6:45 that we just read this great miracle of the feeding of the 5000 with five loaves and two fish. All this religious excitement and yet Jesus steps away, goes to a desolate place into the mountain to pray. And then in Mark 14, 35 through 39, we're very familiar with the garden of Gethsemane right before the crucifixion that Jesus took his disciples and they go into the garden and he gets alone and he prays. You know, Pastor Doug, I thought about Friday morning at our chapel at OCA. There were so many great things that were said about prayer. And so uh, I want to share some things that Pastor Doug shared with our students there at OCA. When we think about application for us, 
as Jesus got alone to pray. Folks, there's no substitute. You need solitude. You need quiet time in your life. If you're not spending time alone with the Father, you're in disobedience, first of all. And secondly, how can we go about life if we don't spend time with God? Secondly, Pastor Doug mentioned to us, turn off your electronic devices. You will live. You'll survive. So when you go to be alone with the Father, turn off your electronic devices. We live in such a busy, busy world. And then finally, Pastor Doug shared with our students that you have to sacrifice something to get along with God. Young people, sacrificing possibly social media, video games, sports, whatever it is. For all of us, you have to think about in your own heart and your own life, what does it look like for you to get alone with God? I don't see how this could be any more like important or urgent for us that Jesus took the time to get alone with the Father. And there was no person who has ever lived that was more busy than Jesus. If you think your life is busy, your, your busyness does not compare to the busyness that Jesus faced of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people always wanting a piece of his time. Then I also thought about this. What did Jesus pray? You know, the Mark passage doesn't specifically tell us, but let's go to other passages in Scripture. Let's go to Luke twenty-two forty-two. Luke twenty-two forty-two. When we think about Jesus spending time in prayer before the Father, as we have to remember, Jesus, yes, fully God, we'll see that here, but also fully man. In Luke twenty-two forty-two. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before the crucifixion, we see this of Jesus saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, when Jesus would pray, he was praying for the will of the Father to be done. And we can go to other places like in the Gospel of John where it says Jesus fully accomplished the will of the Father. And so when we go before the Lord to pray, we should be praying for our desires to line up with the will of the Father. How do we know the will of the Father? It's right here. It's the word of God. And then look at Luke 22, verses 31 and 32. Such a precious passage here. Of We see the compassion of Jesus, of his prayer life. Look at verse 31 in Luke 22. Simon, Simon, so he's talking about Peter here. Behold, Satan demanded to have you. Think about that. Demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus cares and loves his people. And so when Jesus went up on that mountain before he comes to them in the boat, he was praying for his disciples. 
And just like he prayed for the disciples then, I want you to go to John 17. If that doesn't encourage your heart to see Peter, excuse me, Jesus' concern for Peter, look at John 17, 20 and 21. We don't have time to read all of John 17, but we, we see Jesus praying for the glory of God. We see Jesus praying for the disciples, the first 12. And then look at John 17, 20 and 21. Look at what it says about Jesus and his prayer life. Now, we're kind of getting in the middle of this prayer. I just don't have time to go. You have to read all of it on your own. But in verse 20 in John 17, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you if you're here today and you're in Christ. In God's grace, you have believed and Jesus has, is, will pray for you. Look at verse 21 that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays for us to be unified, to be grounded upon the gospel, the good news of Christ. And finally, in Romans eight thirty four, one more place. This is so good. We could spend like the whole time on this, but we'll move on. Romans eight thirty four. Jesus has ascended back into heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. And look at what it says in Romans 8, 34. This is after his resurrection and ascension. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus is constantly praying for his people. So no matter what you may be going through today, your struggles, your hardships, your afflictions, you're in the faith. Jesus, he loves you and he cares about you and he prays for you. And this is why we pray that we would submit, surrender our hearts and our lives to Christ, the one who loves us and gave himself for us. It's so rich and so deep with the compassion and the love of Jesus for his people. So some final application before we move on back in Mark 6. Prayer is really our desires being aligned with the will of God. The goal in prayer is the glory of God. Answers to prayer, guys, are really secondary. God is primary. That's why you pray. Yes, we do see God answer our prayers, but Really, prayer is about us becoming more and more and more and more dependent upon God in every area of our life. Prayer is where we exercise our faith and trusting in God with everything going on in our lives. Mr. Neener, another gentleman that spoke Friday, he said this, many times what I want, I don't need. Let me say that again. Many times what I want, I don't need, and what I need, I don't want. I'll say it one more time. Many times what I want, I don't need, and what I need, I don't want. We need God to continuously change our heart that what we want, what we desire, lines up with who he is and what he wants and desires in our life. 
So truth number one is the centrality of prayer. Let's move forward in verse 47 back in Mark chapter 6. It says, an evening came. And that evening there, just studying through this, was probably 6 to 9 p.m. They kind of broke the nighttime into four different quadrants. So 6 to 9, the evening comes. It says there in verse 47, the boat was out at the sea. So the disciples are in the boat. They're out at sea. And Jesus was alone on the land. We've already seen what Jesus was doing. He was praying. Verse 48, Jesus sees that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. By the way, when it says that Jesus sees, at this point, when you study the Gospel of John, they were three to four miles out. A storm had come up. It's pitch black dark. Okay, They didn't have lighthouses. They didn't have spotlights. They didn't have light as far as you're at nighttime and they're out there the storm the winds are raging you know it's raining they're fighting with the oars trying to get to where they were supposed to get it's not working well but don't miss that it says jesus saw them it's not talking about physically him seeing them like i see mr bill right now i mean they were three to four miles away but jesus is omniscient he's god he saw them he knew their need saw their struggle i'm just telling you this morning whatever you're going through if you're in the faith you're one of his you've trusted in christ he sees you he loves you he cares for you he knows everything that's going on in your life jesus never leaves us never forsakes us and so even though he wasn't physically present with the disciples yet he was with them he saw them So now it goes on to say there in verse 48, about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. Now it's about three to six in the morning. And you may be like, well, why did he wait so long before he went? Jesus's timing is absolutely perfect. And remember, what was Jesus doing? He was praying. That's what they needed most was Jesus to pray for them. This is like, a central moment in the lives of these disciples. I mean, they have seen so much from Jesus, but yet we see at the end of this passage, their hearts were still hard to the things of the Lord. It doesn't mean they were not following Jesus, but they still just didn't fully understand and get it. But they're gonna get it by the end of this night because Jesus had prayed for them. The second truth I want you to see this morning is the obedience of the disciples led to hardship. I want you to think about that. Who told them to get in the boat? Jesus did. Did Jesus know the storm was gonna rise up and they were gonna be struggling three to four miles out in the Sea of Galilee? Well, of course he did. So you may be like, well, that surely wasn't very nice of Jesus. I mean, they could have hung out with the crowds Right? I mean, all this religious fervor, they could have spent the night with some people telling stories. Yeah, Jesus did this, and yeah, we got to see him do this. And they could have had a you know, nice meal in the morning, a good nice rest and all this, all the comfort and the luxury, all of the prosperity gospel, right? They could have had all that right there at their fingertips. And surely, surely that's what Jesus wanted for them. Nope. Jesus told them to get in the boat and about eight to nine hours later, they're wondering, am I going to make it? Okay. I wasn't there. 
But when you're three to four miles out and there's a big storm going on, I mean, Pastor Jim, you mentioned these tornadoes and you mentioned how the one jumped over the house of Jeremy's parents. And I mean, in God's divine providence, I'm sure they were praying and God and his grace allowed that to happen. These disciples, I'm sure, were fearful for their very lives in the midst of this storm. Kent Hughes said this, if you submit your life to Jesus in obedient commitment, you will expose yourself to a variety of sorrows. The Bible says those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, hardship. When you study the pages of scripture, guys, you can't escape the truth, the reality that hardship, affliction, and suffering is vital in the Christian life. I mean, first of all, we know we live in a fallen world. It's broken. It's cursed. We see it all around us. But then we also understand in God's plans and purposes, suffering comes into the lives of his people for the glory of God, for the furtherance of his kingdom, and for our faith to grow in Christ. You see, for these disciples to fully trust in Jesus, the giver of eternal life, they didn't need the comfort and luxury of that night, staying in a nice house, getting a good night's rest, everything going temporally like they wanted it to go. They actually needed to be in affliction to see their great need for Jesus. So look at the end of verse 48. Jesus didn't forget about them. He came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. So now Jesus comes. And it's so easy for us to read that. He walked on the water. I don't know about y'all. I've been to the beach hundreds of times. I've been to different lakes. I've never seen anybody walk on water. I mean, you can watch The Incredibles and the little guy who runs really fast. Okay, but that's a cartoon. That's make-believe. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a make-believe make story. Jesus walked on water. Jesus is God. That's the third truth I want you to see this morning. Jesus again makes it clear he is God. Only God can walk on water. But it's more than just Jesus walking on water. In his walking on water, he knew exactly where they were at, which, by the way, shows his omniscience, that he knows everything. And he goes to them because he loves them and he cares for them. So when it says he meant to pass by them, that doesn't mean he was just going to, hey, how y'all doing? No, not passing by like you pass one car passes another Here's what it means when I studied that. It means to come to be present at a place, to, a, to arrive at. 
Jesus was coming right where they were in their struggle. Mr. Andy, if you're watching today, Jesus is right with you in your struggle. My friend Alex up in North Carolina who's battling cancer, Jesus is right with him in his struggle. For every one of you in here, here on this piece of property, if you're in the faith, Christ is your Lord and he's your savior. He is right with you in your struggle. Such a huge part of this passage that Jesus is making clear to his disciples. So now look at verse 49. Because we're like these disciples. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. Because, I mean, you got to remember now, they've been out here nine hours it's still the, the rains, the mist, the waves are raging. It's pitch black dark and they begin to see something. And I'm sure at this point they're, they're struggling. Of, they have no idea well, what is this. And so when it says they saw a ghost, it's the Greek word for phantom. They cry out, which means they begin to scream. I mean, this is, they're fearful of what is going on. They're fearing for their very lives. Verse 50, it goes on to say, they all saw him and they were terrified. So it wasn't just one that saw him. They all saw him and they're terrified. But look at what Jesus does in verse 50. Immediately he spoke to them and he says, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now that little phrase there, take heart, it's actually an imperative command. He's telling these disciples, have courage, confidence in the midst of danger. Where does our courage and confidence come from when we're struggling in life? It comes from God. They needed to look to Jesus. They needed to listen to his voice. They didn't need to get caught up in the circumstances that they were facing. Now, this is a part of the passage, Pastor Jim. For me, this was like the most, this was the best, most awesome part. Jesus says, it is I. You know what that means in the Greek? He's saying the same thing he said in John 8, 58. Before Abraham was, I am. I am who I am. I am God. It is I. Turn it back to Exodus chapter 3, 13 through 15. If you don't get anything else out of the message, don't miss this part. We all deal with fear. We all deal with anxieties, just like these disciples. And Jesus tells them, don't be afraid. Don't fear. It is I. Look at what God told Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Moses is being called of God to go before the Pharaoh to deliver God's people from their slavery in Egypt. Look at what it says in verse 13 in Exodus 3. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? 
God said to Moses, I am who I am. Then he goes on and he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And then check out what verse 15 says. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am being remembered throughout all generations. The name of God, the covenantal name of God, Yahweh, the God of the covenant, God has, is, will save a people for himself. And so Jesus is making it clear right here to the disciples back in Mark chapter six, I am is before you, the self-existent one, the eternal one. And I've got you in my hands and nothing or no one is gonna snatch you out of my hands. I love you, I care for you, you are mine. This morning, that should comfort your heart. No matter what you're going through, God has you. He is God. Jesus is God. Now back to Mark chapter 6. In Mark 6.50, Jesus goes on to tell them, do not be afraid. Of course they were afraid. I mean, they're fearing for their lives. There's things that happen in our lives, right? We struggle with fear. We struggle with anxiety. We struggle with worry. But all throughout scripture, the Bible tells us, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Why? Because Jesus is God and he's with us and he loves us. Job 9, 8, you don't have to turn there, but it says the one who spreads out the heavens and treads or marches on the waves of the sea. This is God. He's the one who walks on water. Now, a lot of times we give Peter a hard time, but I want you to real quick, turn to Matthew 14. Peter does something. It's not recorded in the gospel of Mark, but it's recorded in Matthew. Matthew chapter 14. This is awesome. Peter gets so... You know, in his fear, in his anxiety... He's so moved by all this. In Matthew chapter 14, I want us to read 28 through 31. This is a parallel account, Jesus walking on water. Look at how Peter responds when Jesus says, you know, hey, take heart, don't be afraid. Verse 28, Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus, if this is you, you tell me to come. And look at what Jesus says. Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Now, we know Peter had struggles. His faith was an immature faith. It was a weak faith. But I need you to hear this morning, Peter loved Jesus. And he got out of the boat. And Peter did something that nobody else besides Jesus did, he began to walk on the water because he was trusting in Jesus, his Lord and Savior. But look at verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. He began to sink and he cried out, Lord, save me. Peter, just like all of us, right? He struggled with doubts and fears and anxieties. And so in the midst of this, I mean, if you think about the absurdity of it, Jesus is on a boat 
in the midst of a storm and he gets out of the boat to try to walk to Jesus. The reason why Chimo Jesus did that, I mean, excuse me, Peter did that, is he knew it was safer to be with Jesus than to actually be in the boat. He wanted to be with Jesus. But yet, in this step of faith and obedience, he struggles, he gets his eyes off Christ, and he begins to sink. And then verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand. Praise God for that. And he took hold of him saying, Oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? So he does instruct him and counsel him, but Jesus reached out his hand. And he picks Peter up. He's like, oh, he's not lighting up. Peter, sorry. You know what? You didn't have enough faith. Too bad. Bye. You're going to drown. No, that's not our God. Jesus lovingly reaches out his hand and he pulls Peter to safety. Guys, we all struggle with worry and anxiety and fear. But may we be men, women, boys, and girls of faith. Faith in Christ. Trust in Christ to do the impossible. No matter what it is that we're struggling with in our life. And so finally, let's go to the last truth. So we've seen that Jesus is God. We've seen that he loves and takes care of his people. The fourth truth is by the grace of God, we must move from unbelief to belief. Moving from unbelief to belief. Go back to Mark chapter 6, verse 51. Mark 6, 51. Jesus gets into the boat with them. And look what happens as soon as he gets in the boat. He didn't even have to say anything. The wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. By the way, Jesus controls the weather. Jesus controls everything. When it says they were utterly astounded, it means they were amazed beyond measure. Now look at verse 52. This is kind of the sad part here. They did not, up to this point, they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. I mean, Jesus right before this had fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. They had seen all these other miracles but yet, the scriptures tell us they were still hard to the, the truth, the reality that Jesus truly was the Son of God. Why? You want to know why? Because they were wrapped up in temporal stuff. They had an earthly mindset, earthly kingdom. They got wrapped up just in the things of this world. That Jesus was somehow going to be an earthly king there in Jerusalem and they were just going to be ruling with him. They didn't see the bigger picture. This was so much more than just Jesus being an earthly king. You see, Jesus wasn't simply about overthrowing the Romans and establishing an earthly kingdom in Jerusalem. No, Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. His kingdom is all the heavens and all of the earth. Revelation 5, 8 through 10, you don't have to turn there, teaches us that Jesus first came to die to shed his blood to rescue his people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Because he's the king of all the nations. Pastor Jim, this is why we do missions. Revelation 5. God has, is, and will save his people from all ends of the earth. And he's called us to go and make disciples. Philippians chapter 2, 9 through 11. You don't have to turn there, but it teaches us that the name of Jesus is the name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then I do want you to turn to Matthew 14. I want you to see what happens. It's not recorded in Mark, but it's recorded in Matthew. Matthew 14, 33. At the end of this encounter with Jesus on the water, after Jesus has calmed the winds, look at what Matthew 14, 33 says. Mr. Bill, they finally get it. They finally get it. It says, and those in the boat, talking about the disciples, worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Pastor Doug, they got it. After two years of being with Jesus, him teaching them, discipling them, sharing life with them, and finally the light bulb goes off, they got it. Jesus was God. You get it this morning? Do you really understand who Jesus is? You know that word worship there? It means in the Greek to give one's allegiance to, to bow down, to prostrate yourself before someone else they finally realized this was more than just an earthly kingdom this was about the king of kings and the lord of lords you know what peter got it so much i mean we know that there's the instance of where before the rooster crows there after uh, during the crucifixion the arrest i'm sorry that he denies you know, christ uh, three times but we know that in Christ he's restored. And when you come to the end of Peter's life, you see such humility. Tradition tells us that when he was gonna be martyred for his faith, he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified the same way as my Lord. And he was crucified upside down. He had been changed by the gospel. He'd been changed by the grace of God the compassion and the love of Jesus. You know, when Jesus was praying that night for the disciples, this was the time, Miss Kim. God got a hold of their hearts and their hard hearts became soft hearts. And they began to follow Jesus, not perfectly, but they began to fully understand. You, you know, another way that we know that, we don't have time to go there, but in John 6, the very next day, when Jesus preaches the message I mentioned last week about being the bread of life, and we, in order to follow Jesus, you have to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. And all the, those in the crowds were like walking away. The 12, now we know Judas was a traitor, but they didn't walk away. Remember what Peter said? Jesus, where else could we go? You have the words of eternal life. They got it. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus this morning? When we think about Christmas, it's about Jesus as King, the Savior, the Lord, the Rescuer, the Messiah, the way of salvation. The shepherds came and bowed down before baby Jesus because by the grace of God, they knew he was the coming King. The wise men brought expensive gifts because they knew that Jesus was the King. 
Do you know Jesus as the King today, as the Lord and as the Savior? Have you repented, turned from your sin and trusted in Christ alone to save you? Have you surrendered your life to him? Have you moved from unbelief to belief? Let's pray together. God, everything I just shared is only possible by your grace. It's a work, God, of your spirit. It's a work of the gospel. God, you would open up our blind eyes to see the truth of your word. Jesus, just like you opened up the eyes of those disciples on that night in the boat, in the midst of the raging storm, you transform their hearts. God, we pray that you would do the same today. I pray for any lost soul today, that today would be the day of salvation. For any man, woman, boy, or girl that doesn't know Christ, that they would surrender all to Christ today. And then, Father, for those of us that are in the faith, may we be so encouraged this morning. Jesus, you care, you love you provide, you protect, you take care of your people every step of the way, regardless of the sufferings, regardless of the afflictions. And we thank you for that, Jesus. Thank you for your amazing love for us. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen. Let's all stand and we will worship the Lord now through song. Join us for a little town of Bethlehem. <laughs> 